Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message. All right, uh, welcome back. We, we're really going to have to think about bumping that to 90 seconds. <laughs> uh, we have, I'm not speaking. Everyone breathe, breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, we have with us Pastor Jason. Come on up, Pastor Jason from Wilmore Vineyard, our good friend. Y'all remember our good friend Ron Joe came and helped to lead worship a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, months ago? I don't remember. Time is, it's been a minute. Uh, but this is another friend of ours. Oh my gosh, I hit your mic. Uh, this is another uh, friend of ours from <laughs> Saboteur. Uh, this is a good friend of ours from Wilmore, Kentucky, our pa- uh, pastor up there. Thank you so much for being with us today. And your lovely wife, Kira, thank you all for filling in. Can uh, Let's just say a quick prayer. Bless uh, Brother Jason here. Jesus, thank you for Pastor Jason. And would you just speak through him and just help us receive what you have given him to share this morning. Bless him, Lord. Thank you. Amen. All right. Thank you, sir. Good morning. It, uh, this is my first time to Campbellsville. I've lived in Kentucky for 25 years and the first time down here. So I'm uh, glad to be. I've come as far as Lebanon or Lebanon, however, you know. So Lebanon, yeah, yeah, Paraville, yeah. So it's, uh, it's good to be with you guys this morning. I think Adam and I realized last fall uh, when he came up to preach up in Wilmore that he and I, he has been the lead pastor here about the same amount of time that I have been the lead pastor in Wilmore, which is actually a long time as far as pastors go uh, in, uh, in today's climate. And uh, one thing that means is because, and I know this personally, the longer you stay with a congregation and the longer you pastor a congregation, the more you grow to love them and the more protective you become of them. And so that means that when you get asked to come and speak, um, it's an honor and it's a privilege. And so I'm glad that Adam has entrusted you guys to me this morning uh, for a few minutes. I want to uh, uh, read a couple of scripture passages this morning. And the first is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And I have just realized with a new glasses prescription a couple of months ago that I am finally old enough to have to have bifocals, which I don't have. So <laughs> we'll have to... We'll have to have up and down. Anyway, uh, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then uh, to a little book that we don't read from very often, but Paul's little letter to Titus. And I'm going to read the first eight verses of chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. 
Now, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Let's pray. Father, I just wish to take a minute um, to thank you for your written word to us in Scripture. And I want to say, Father, we are especially thankful for your written word to us in Scripture because it is what points us primarily to Jesus, who is your living word. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit, not only on the reading of your word, not only on the words I'm going to say, but on all of us who are gathered here so that you can have your way with us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was uh, a kid... Uh, I was a big fan of these uh, short uh, animated films about Superman that were made in the 1940s by Paramount Studios. And so at the beginning of each one of those, at the beginning of each one of those 10, 12 minute uh, little short cartoons, the narrator would say this, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, Able to leap tall buildings with a single bound, the infant of Krypton is now the man of steel, Superman. Now, you know this, that there's nowhere in the accounts of the life of Jesus where we are told that he was faster than a speeding bullet. They didn't have bullets anyway. There's nowhere in the accounts of Jesus that we are told that he was more powerful than a locomotive. They didn't have those either. They did have some tall buildings, but there's nowhere in the accounts of Jesus's life where we are told that he leapt over any tall buildings. Nevertheless, like when we read the stories of Jesus, it does seem that he was kind of like a superhuman figure, right? Like it, it seems to us like Jesus was kind of this extraordinary figure that there was something more than just, just the, the capacities of humanity going on uh, about him. So I think about Jesus's teaching because... In all of the centuries that came before Jesus was born, the people of Israel, the, the, the children of Israel, they had grown used to a lot of teaching from their religious leaders. But like it was the kind of teaching that kind of bored your mind and made your heart cold. And that's what they had sat under for centuries. And then this guy, Jesus, comes along. And, and we are told that when the crowds went out to hear him teach, they, they, they said that he taught like nobody else had ever taught before, that he had this amazing ability to like enliven their minds and warm their hearts when he was teaching and he could keep their attention in a way that nobody before him had been able to keep attention. And we're gonna test this in about 20 or 25 minutes that he could keep people's attention the way nobody since him has been able to keep people's attention. As a matter of fact, in Eugene Peterson's message translation of scripture, he tells us that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this is how the crowd responded to Jesus's teaching. The crowds burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this before. So like, what kind of superhuman is Jesus 
that he could teach like nobody had ever taught, that he could hold people's attention for so very, very long. Then there's this one account in the stories of Jesus where in a single day, Jesus goes to the far side of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Jerasa. As soon as he gets off the boat, he meets this guy who is possessed of about 6,000 demons. He says, the demons say their name is Legion. And with just a few words, you remember it's that wacky story, right? Jesus casts the 6,000 demons out of this man. They all rush into a herd of pigs and the herd of pigs rush down into the lake and drown themselves. Then Jesus goes back, same day, Jesus goes back across the Sea of Galilee. He's walking through the town and all of a sudden he feels power go out of his body and we discover that this woman who's had a menstrual issue for 12 years which makes her unclean and incapable of being in community in that culture has been healed. Shortly after that, same day, he goes to a house where he raises a little girl from the dead. Now what kind of superhuman is this? That he could cast out demons, heal the sick, and raise the dead in probably about 12 to 16 hours. What is that? Then there's Jesus's temptation in the wilderness. This is when Jesus goes out to the wilderness and for, for 40 days, he doesn't have anything to eat or drink. And then when he is physically weak and emotionally tired, Satan shows up. And Satan lobs all of these temptations at Jesus. And yet, in his physically weakened state and in his emotionally weakened state, Jesus is able to rebuff every temptation Satan throws his way. Like, what kind of superhuman being is Jesus? And then, Scripture tells us that Jesus, in the entirety of his life, perfectly fulfilled the law of love. He perfectly obeyed God's law of love. Later, the book of Hebrews will insist to us that Jesus was sinless. What kind of human being is this that can live without sinning? Well, the reality is that Jesus was not a superhuman being at all. The insistence of Scripture is that Jesus did all of these things in spite of the fact that he was just a human being. Now, if you know about Superman, you know that Jerry Siegel and a, another guy whose name was Joseph Schuster, I believe, when they created Superman back in the 1930s, they gave credit for Superman's superhuman capacities to the place of his birth. You remember this? He was born on the planet Krypton, and then as the planet Krypton was going to be destroyed, his parents put him into a capsule, and the capsule shot him off to Earth, where he was discovered by a farmer and his wife, and they raised him up to be Clark Kent. And Clark Kent appeared to be a human being, but he wasn't really a human being at all. He was a Kryptonian. He was an alien to Earth, which is where his superhuman capacities came from. Now, sometimes, sometimes you and I take sort of a Superman approach to our Christology. Christology just means the way the church thinks and understands and believes about the nature and the being of Jesus. And sometimes we take a Superman sort of approach to Jesus. That we, and that means that we assume that he is able to do all of these superhuman, extraordinary things that he did because he was somehow an alien to earth, that he was somehow not one of us. But the reality is that scripture insists over and over and over again that Jesus was human, that he became human in the same way that you and I are human. This means 
that he was born in the midst of pain and mess and blood in the same way every one of us was born. Then scripture is going to go on to, we think about his, that temptation in the wilderness. And in the temptation of the wilderness, what we find Jesus doing is rejecting the privilege that he had to act in a superhuman way. And he chose instead to live as a human. So when Satan comes to him and says, turn the stones into bread, Jesus could have done that, but instead he chose to be human. He chose to handle it in a human way. When Satan said, come and jump off of this, this, this cliff and tell the, command the angels to come and save you, Jesus could have done that, but instead he chose to be fully human. And when Satan said, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the earth to reign over, Jesus could have done that, but he chose instead to be fully human. In Paul's little letter to the Philippians, there's this section in chapter two where he records what is most likely a hymn that was sung by the very earliest Christians. Like in the times 20, 30, 40 years after Jesus has died, raised, and ascended to heaven, this is a hymn that would have been sung much as we sung hymns this morning by the very first Christians. And in this hymn, the first Christians, when they sang it, they recognized the humanity of Jesus. So they said, Jesus, or sang this. I'm not going to sing it because I don't do that. But they would have sang, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being born in human likeness. And then in this very same hymn, the early Christians were going to go on to, to sing that sort of the one thing that made Jesus most human was the way he died. And being found in appearance, they would have sang. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, you know that superhumans aren't nailed to crosses. They don't die on crosses. And superhumans are not laid in tombs. Jesus was not superhuman. Jesus was a human. And that raises a question. How in the world do we account for all of those amazing things he did? How in the world do we account for all of those extraordinary superhuman things he did when he was a human being? Well, this is why we read the story of Jesus' baptism. You remember when Jesus went out to be baptized at the Jordan River, his cousin John, John would have been 9, 12 months older than Jesus, his cousin John is out there doing the, doing the baptism, and John was a wild man. You wouldn't have stuck around this morning if I, pre, if I showed up like John. And you wouldn't stick around long if I preached like John, because John was a hairy, rugged outdoorsman who preached hellfire and brimstone. And even though he preached hellfire and brimstone, crowds of ordinary common people came from everywhere to hear him preach and to be baptized him. Now, John's baptisms, we're told in the Bible, were baptisms for a specific purpose. They were baptisms for the repentance of sin. And so out comes his little cousin Jesus one day. He recognizes in this moment that Jesus is actually the Messiah that everybody has been waiting for, the Savior that God is sending. And Jesus comes up to John and indicates that he wants to be baptized. You remember John has like he chokes on this. 
Because he's thinking, I can't baptize the Messiah. You've come as the Savior of God. You don't need to be baptized for the repentance of sin. You don't need to get in the water with all of these other sort of common, ordinary humans who have these sin issues. And <laughs> Jesus nails John really quick. He says, well, you better do this because it's what God wants. So John baptizes Jesus. And three things happen when Jesus comes up out of the water. First, the heavens are rent open. This means that Jesus saw something extraordinary happen in the sky above him. The third thing that happens is that he hears a voice from heaven. And this voice affirms for him something he already knew, but this is a significant affirmation of it. The voice from heaven, which is the voice of God, affirms for Jesus that he is God's beloved son. But it's the second of the three, thing that hap three things that happen that I want us to pay particular attention to this morning. The second thing that happens is that Jesus experiences a dove, the Holy Spirit descending as a dove from heaven and falling on him. You guys remember, of course, the story of Noah, right? Does that amaze you that we always put Noah's ark up in nurseries and it's one of the most difficult stories in the whole of the Bible? <laughs> and all these cute animals in this boat up about this story where the whole human race gets wiped out. You know, it's like, it's not a kid's story, guys. But you remember when Noah is on the boat, the rain has stopped and they're on the ark and Noah wants to know, you know, how things are going with the receding levels of the water on the earth. And Noah takes one of the doves and he sends the dove out. And his thought is this, if the dove doesn't come back, I will know that there's dry land reappearing. But if the dove comes back, it will mean that the earth is still entirely immersed, sort of entirely baptized in water. And it's quite likely that the reason the Holy Spirit is seen descending upon Jesus as a dove is to say to us that just as the earth was entirely immersed in water, so in this moment, Jesus has been entirely drenched in the Holy Spirit, entirely drenched in the power and the presence of God. And it's only then, after Jesus is entirely drenched in the power and the presence of God, that he goes out into the wilderness and has the strength to resist the temptation as just a human being. It's only after this event that he sets out to do his ministry in which he taught so powerfully and cast out demons and healed people and raised the dead because he had been drenched in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus falls down in the Garden of Gethsemane awaiting his crucifixion, he is drenched in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit that gives him the ability to proceed in obedience to the will of God rather than denying it. I think when Jesus dies, he dies on the cross in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit immersed in it. And we know for sure that he was immersed in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit when he was raised from the dead. We know this in particular because Paul tells us so in Romans 8, 11. Paul says this, and if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So here's the thing. The son of God becomes a human being who is named Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus of Nazareth, who is the son of God, does extraordinary things because he is immersed or drenched in the power and presence of God's Holy Spirit. But here we have Paul saying that we are also baptized or drenched in the power and presence of God's Holy Spirit. And Paul says that one of the things that means is that if we are also drenched in the power and presence of God's Holy Spirit, then that same Holy Spirit's also going to raise us up from death. It is not the final thing for us that just as the Holy Spirit acted in the life of Jesus to raise him from the dead, the Holy Spirit will act in our life to raise us from the dead. And this poses some interesting questions because if we believe that the Holy Spirit has the power to raise us up from the dead, then ought we not believe that the Holy Spirit can empower us to do all the same sorts of things that Jesus did when he was alive? Like resurrection is the ultimate, right? If the Holy Spirit can do that, then we also ought to believe that we can speak with divine authority as did Jesus in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. We ought also to believe that in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we can heal diseases, we can cast out demons, maybe even raise people from the dead. There are legitimate accounts of followers of Jesus doing that. We ought to also believe then that just as it was possible for Jesus to resist temptation in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, so can we. That just as it was able for Jesus to fulfill the, the law of love and willingly suffer for the sake of others, then so we can also do this. The same Holy Spirit that made Jesus so extraordinary is the same Holy Spirit that can make us so very, very extraordinary. And this brings me for just a minute to Paul's letter to Titus. I grew up Methodist, United Methodist. Uh, my father and father-in-law are both retired United Methodist pastors. Um, they will be, my father and Kira's dad will be going the global Methodist route, which is the, not, the, not staying with the denomination. But in Methodism, you know, they, they send you a pastor, right? They appoint you a pastor. And Paul, Paul actually did that. He sent, he sent Timothy, for example, to Ephesus, which was like what we would say in Methodism, that's a plum appointment. That's a good one. <laughs> I don't know what Titus had done to Paul, but Paul sent him to the island of Crete. And the island of Crete is one of those appointments where the bishop looks at you and says, I know you don't like them. I don't like them, but Jesus likes them. So you have to go because the Cretans were known all over the Roman empire as being rough and mean and nasty. And they were civilly disobedient. They were lawbreakers. They were crude. Have you ever heard somebody say, don't act like a Cretan? Don't act like a Cretan. You'll occasionally still hear that named after these people. Like in some, some people still use these ancient people to say, don't be like them. And this is who Paul sends Titus to. And Paul sends Titus to pastor them because Paul understands that there have been this group of people, they, they were ordinary Cretans. Like they were living like all of the other Cretans around, just ordinary common Cretans doing all of this horrible stuff, living these messy lives, but something happened to them. And these ordinary Cretans became instead rather extraordinary Cretans. They weren't like everybody else anymore. And, and when Paul describes what happened to them, he says it this way. And God saved, the, in Titus, God saved the Cretans through the washing of rebirth, which means he saved them through their coming to faith in Jesus, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
So he made them extraordinary by bringing them to faith in Jesus and by drenching them, immersing them in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. You guys may have heard of a a pastor and author. He did most of his ministry in, his name's A.W. Tozer. He did most of his ministry in the mid-1900s. And um, A.W. Tozer wrote an excellent book on the Holy Spirit. And uh, A.W. Tozer described life life without the Holy Spirit this way. He said, life without the Holy Spirit makes you like a French poodle who is surrounded all the time by roaring lions just looking for the right opportunity to eat you up. And we can identify with this, right? You know, this Jesus says, love everybody. Then you go out into the world and the lion of slander comes your way and you feel like a French poodle who does not have the power to love everybody. Jesus says, speak kindly and honorably of others, but then the lion of somebody being despicable comes against you and you feel like a French poodle in your capacity to actually love your enemy. You run into somebody who's got a horrible, terrible disease, right? And you know that you may have the power in the presence of the Holy Spirit to do something about that, but you feel like a French poodle in the face of the lion of disease. And then death is like a lion that comes after us all, right? And we often feel like a French poodle in the face of death. We can identify with what it's like to go through the world being like French poodles surrounded by lions, And A.W. Tozer says, and he writes this in the 1960s, says the problem is that the world that sends the lions after us is the same world that when the lions are coming after us will look at at us and the advice it will give us is it will say, you need to wake up the lion within. Just wake up the power that is within you. And I don't mean to sound kind of old-fashioned, but like that's all over self-help literature today. You can watch the Today Show or Good Morning America tomorrow and you're going to be fed that drivel. It's going to be all over a number of the interviews that they do. It's all over the bookshelves. Just find the power that is within you, and you can overcome these things, these lions that are coming against you. Tozer, as only he can write, says, I want you to think about how foolish that advice actually is. By suggesting that we envision ourselves putting a French poodle in a den of lions... And he says, you can stand at the top of that den of lions and you can yell at that French poodle, wake up the inner lion within you. Wake up the inner lion within you. Just wake up the inner lion till you're blue in the face and the French poodle will still be eaten by the lions. Then Tozer explains it this way. If God wanted a French poodle to fight a lion, he would have to put the heart and body of the lion in the poodle. He would have to make him bigger and stronger than his opponent. But God didn't do that to the French poodle says, instead, God says, I do not want to wake up the power that lies in you, but you shall receive the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you. And that is a different thing altogether. If only we needed to be awakened, the Lord would simply have gone around saying, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. But we needed more than to just wake up. We needed to be endued with power from on high. Now, In Jesus' last meal with his disciples, according to John's gospel, he said numerous things that shocked the 12. But one of the things he said to them that they found most shocking, and he said, guys, I need you to know, it's going to be better for me to go away than to stay with you. And they were like, what do you mean? You imagine, you know, if you're married, you imagine your spouse saying to you today, it's going to be better if I go away 
than to stay. Like that would be shocking. And that's how they heard this. They were shocked by it. And then Jesus explained to them why it would be better for him to go away. And you know what he said? Because when I go away, I will go to the Father, and the Father and I will send you the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So that the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit is actually for us in this time better for us than having the physical presence of Jesus with us. Now, in Titus 3, 5, and 6, Paul had said, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us graciously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Paul there is tying, as I said earlier, he's tying that moment when we come to faith with this drenching or immersion in the power and presence of God in the Holy Spirit. So that when we come to faith in Jesus, we are suddenly given the gift of the Spirit who takes us from being ordinary human beings to being extraordinary human beings. Peter also preaches this same thing on the day of Pentecost. Remember Pentecost, they all started speaking in languages they, they, they hadn't known before when the Holy Spirit came upon this, drew a large crowd. And then Peter really gave it to the crowd when he preached that sermon. Remember he said, you guys killed Jesus and you don't feel at all bad about it. And it just so happens that Jesus was actually the Messiah and Savior of God and you put him to death. And he kind of like drops that bomb on them. And they, the spirit strikes them in conviction and they start pleading with Peter, well, what then should we do? What do we do about this? Peter famously said to them at the end of the, in answer to that question, he said this, repent and be baptized in water, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So when we come to faith in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit takes us from being ordinary human beings to being extraordinary human beings who all of a sudden resemble the most extraordinary human being, Jesus of Nazareth, in ways we never imagined were possible for us. And I asked the worship team, uh, if you guys want to make your way on back up. I, uh, I believe, um, I believe it because I think scripture bears it out, that God is particularly drawn to us in our weakness. Remember Paul saying, saying uh, in Second uh, Corinthians that he's, he's just a jar of clay in whom the power of God has been poured. And I think there's something that means that when we are vulnerable in our weakness, God is like almost irresistibly drawn to us in the vulnerability of our weakness. And so I want to take the risk. We sometimes do. I sometimes take this risk back up in Wilmore. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I'll take this risk because I think some of you right now, as you think about the week ahead of you, you know where the lions in your life are. And you know which lions make you particularly feel like a French poodle. You, know, you may already be feeling overwhelmed about confronting that lion or those lions this week. So I just want to ask you, if that is you, would you just stand for a minute because I want to pray over you. So if you've got some lions this week and you just need the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, just go ahead and stand up, be vulnerable. 
thanks again for stopping by the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time.